Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the NLAB Eternity. Our host is Dr. Adam Wildman, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The Anwar Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to NucleCast, of course. I'm Adam Lowther, and we this is episode two of our discussion with Alan Carr, Senior Historian at Los Alamos. And on episode one, which I'm sure all of you have listened to, we ended with a discussion of the rivalry between Los Alamos and Livermore. And this, you you were talking in, about this, you know, how Los Alamos would always sort of take, is known for taking that sure design. And Livermore has historically had the more complex weapons. You know, they oftentimes focused on miniaturization, which was a necessity. And you mentioned this in terms of when you have to build warheads that fit uh, on top of ICBMs, you need them to be as small and as lightweight as possible. And so is there, can you talk about some of these key driving factors like, the invention of the ICBM or other technologies and how did Los Alamos deal with, did they do specific things or did they just say, you know, did Norris Bradbury just say, Hey guys, we need it to be smaller. We're going to put it on a ICBM or, or were there specific things that, that were done to enable this type of innovation? Uh, can you give us a sense of, of, of how that all took place? Sure. You know, I, I think a lot of this has to do with the history of nuclear testing. And, you know, when we talk about the differences between Los Alamos and Livermore, uh, you know, I, I, I oversimplified it. But I think for, for, those, for the listeners, it really does kind of capture the sense of what did happen. Uh, Livermore could make very reliable things, too. And Los Alamos could be very creative and, and innovative. But, you know, as, as we look back and and consider, you know, what did produce the stockpile as we did know it during the Cold War, especially to miniaturization and the versatility of the stockpile. It's it's all about the ever-changing military requirements and what we were learning through nuclear testing. So when we think about nuclear testing, most people think about these very dramatic, important, in some cases, history-changing events, like the Trinity test like Ivy Mike, which was the first full-scale uh, thermonuclear detonation. Castle Bravo, of course, the first deliverable thermonuclear weapon. You've got, uh, you know, the famous atomic cannon, the upshot novel Grable test in 1953. And, and you think about that. We can now fire a nuclear weapon out of a cannon. It's a pretty hostile launch environment, uh, right? Uh, and, and all of these things worked. But... Those are not representative of, of, of most tests necessarily. The United States performed over a thousand full-scale nuclear tests, and these were many different varieties. They were done for many different things. Uh, but the most common type of test by far was to just tweaks of the design, was to basically advance the design. So you take an existing weapon, 
and say, well, you know, what if we removed this much material or we added this much material or we made this tweak to it or that tweak to it? Th that is what I think led to miniaturization. And you had other ideas that came along as well that helped you get more nuclear yield out of the, out of the smaller package. But this happened over the course of years and, and ultimately decades. And it came through the tests. And, you know, uh, when you look at the test history, the testing history is filled with surprises. You know, I, I once heard somebody say, you know, uh, they, they were asking a question at a colloquium. They said, you know, the United States did a thousand nuclear tests. They, you know, they kind of more or less came out the way that we thought they would. What's the problem? There were surprises throughout the history of testing. Big surprises, little surprises. But if you talk to designers and engineers, um, you know, they're going to, the ones with experience are going to tell you, you know, we learned something useful in essentially every test that was ever performed. So it's very much a, a you know, theory and then trial, error, and refinement. And that is what got to these smaller nuclear weapons. And occasionally sprinkled in there is a pretty significant new idea. And of course, those new ideas in the early days were, ba were, were basic now, fission and fusion. But then you have things like boosting and all of these other things that come in to create what's now, uh, you know, again, a very sophisticated, very reliable uh, nuclear package. So that, that's basically how that happened. And as weapons get smaller, well, you've got more options for delivery. And hence you have you know, ICBMs with multiple uh, independently targeted warheads on the end. And I mean, when you think about it, you know, Adam, I mean, you, you know, you've got military experience in the Air Force. This is really ferocious and scary when you think about it. And hence, again, that is where the deterrence value comes in. But when you've got one missile carrying a lot of warheads, and that's just one missile of many on a submarine, think of what one submarine the kind of damage that one submarine could unleash. And uh, and again, to me, it's really scary. But, you know, that fear is the backbone of, of deterrence um, as we think about what nuclear weapons will do. And, you know, that innovation was made possible, you know, during the 50s and the 60s. And then it was refined greatly in the 1970s, the 1980s, even into the early 1990s. And of course, to today, uh, the laboratories ensure that everything in the stockpile is safe, reliable, and effective if ever called upon, which again, hopefully they won't be. So if we go to this period when Dwight Eisenhower was the president and we had, you know, the new look policy, we built the pentomic divisions and essentially the United States said, we don't have enough conventional forces to defeat the Soviets in Europe. So we're going to rely on nuclear weapons. And then you know, so we deployed a lot and a lot of variety and we had mega megaton class weapons. We had, you know, artillery we had. And then in the 1960s, when we sort of reached the, the peak of the size of the arsenal and you've got folks at the labs who are designing the weapons and playing a critical role in this, you know, growing arsenal. What was the discussion or because one of the things, you know, f for me, I've spent much of my career, you know, I'm a social scientist by training. And so I often have discussions of, 
you know, strategy and policy with physicists. And so we come at this from a very different perspective. And, you know, oftentimes the physicists will say, hey, you guys don't understand the weapons enough. And we'll say, we, the social scientists will say, hey, you don't understand the people enough. And so there was this, you know, there had to have been this debate and discussion at Los Alamos at a time when the arsenal, you know, was huge. What what was going on and what were people thinking? And then as you move to the 70s and the 80s and then the end of the Cold War, and then you have this dramatic drawdown. What was that internal discussion and debate like then as well? You know, Los Alamos during the uh, during the fifties and sixties was made up. The, the the senior managers very much were holdovers from the Manhattan Project. And so, in in our first podcast, we talked about how a lot of people left the laboratory. Some of them stayed, and some of them stayed for decades. And so, Norris Bradbury. Most of his associate directors and division leaders, they were there during World War II. Uh, these were people who walked with Oppenheimer, if you will. Uh, they had witnessed Trinity. <coughs> they had, uh, you know, they had, uh, they might not have witnessed Hiroshima and Nagasaki personally, although I did know some people who, who did, but they, they were there when the news was announced and they had helped bring that technology into the world. There was also there, there was always a very heavy, heavy responsibility that went along with it. Uh, my predecessor was named Roger Meek, uh, a great historian, uh, mentor, and friend to me. He knew it Norris. He knew Norris Bradbury personally. Uh, I never had the opportunity to meet Norris, but uh, you know, I was talking with Roger one time about Norris and about the history of testing, and Roger told me that that Bradbury told him one time in reflecting on testing, a very simple phrase, but he said, it was hard. And Roger said, you could tell it, it weighed on him. Uh, Norris Bradbury didn't like nuclear weapons. He was very clear about that. But he was also clear that as long as this is what prevents future global wars between the great powers, at Los Alamos, we're gonna make sure that the nation has entirely reliable and effective nuclear weapons uh, available. I think he did look forward to a day when maybe something else would be invented that would be better, uh, that, where the stakes would maybe be a little bit lower than multi-megaton thermonuclear weapons. But he did recognize that, that it had worked. And I think that those first generation of leaders, not to say that the future leaders didn't feel the same way, but I think in particular that first generation of leaders that had been there at the beginning, that what they had seen, what they had witnessed, what they had helped bring into the world during World War II is something that always guided them, something that they never lost sight of. And, and I would say that that's actually a pretty important part of deterrence even to this day. We can't forget what nuclear weapons will do. Uh, you know, we can't, I think it's very dangerous to just casually throw around, oh, but you, you know, we hear a lot of this happening as a result of the Ukraine conflict right now. Uh, coming out of, of the Kremlin uh, about battlefield nuclear weapons, this, that, everything else. We want to get away from that kind of talk, I think. And I think that uh, that would uh, be very much uh, uh, something that would not be welcomed by the first generation of leaders and workers at Los Alamos. 
the discussion at the laboratory was how can we meet these military requirements? You know, what's the most effective way that we can do about it, to, to do that? One, one thing that's different, quite a bit different between Livermore and Los Alamos was that, and this is borne out, this is something that you know, is quantifiable. Um, when the military would put out a bid, especially in the early days, now this changed, you know, over time, later in the Cold War, it basically became the lab would take turns designing a new warhead or something like that. But in the 50s and 60s, um, you know, Los Alamos recycled designs. You know, the Liberal, you know, Los a or the military would come out and say, we need a nuclear weapon system that will do this. Los Alamos would look on the shelf and see what warheads existed. And the question was, well, can we just repackage this quickly and cheaply and get the military what they need? And so a lot of Los Alamos warhead designs were repurposed over and over and over again and found their way into different nuclear weapons complete systems. Uh, Livermore usually started from scratch. I think there's only one exception to that, but typically Livermore would go back and they would invent something completely new. And it was more expensive and it took more time, but it would introduce something new and maybe a little bit different than had been there before. Um, and not to get too far, this is this is a little bit beyond the question that you asked, but I think you might enjoy it to kind of demonstrate. You mentioned Livermore weapons being more complex, generally speaking, not always, but generally I believe that's true. You know, at Pantex, Pantex is an important part of the complex outside of Amarillo, Texas. They don't uh, get a lot of credit, a lot of fanfare, uh, but they deserve it because Pantex has played a very important role. They were part of that early expansion of the complex in the early 1950s. Um, the, the, the saying was that, uh, when, a liver, or that a Los, when a Los Alamos weapon came in for disassembly, it was Miller time, right? <laughs> when a Livermore weapon came in for disassembly, it was overtime. <laughs> you know, differences that kind of reverberate even uh, throughout the complex at places like Pantex. Uh, but again, you know, at Los Alamos, that was very much the the, the discussion. You know, it was uh, it was very much a focus on getting the country those reliable weapons, providing the backbone of the stockpile that was needed in some very very dangerous years. In, uh, in the world's history. And that's not to say that the conversation was similar at Los Al or at Livermore, I, I should say, because I think Livermore was very duty oriented in just the same way, but you had different approaches and thus I think that you had some different conversations that went along with that. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Amla Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. So as you move late in the Cold War and then the Soviet Union rather unexpectedly collapses and then President George H.W. Bush decides we're going to dramatically reduce the nation's arsenal and we're pulling all of these weapons, you know, out of uh, operational deployment, what's going on? at the lab at that point. And then in those early years afterward, I mean, cause you know, a lot of these labs were, you know, they were purely nuclear labs. And then, you know, there's, it comes a point at which they change their name and they become national security labs and they try to, you know, they get into climate change and they get into all sorts of stuff. 
because they're 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 trying to you know they're trying to stay alive and have a relevant mission and so w- what else going on and what's the sort of the inner thought during that period yeah you know just a quick background because i think this is a fascinating era uh, that you that you've brought up adam you know in the uh, in, in the beginning los alamos was a weapons design laboratory and we evolved into a, what I call a nuclear science laboratory. Others have called it that, but I've adopted that uh, in the late 50s and the 1960s. And then in the 1970s, Los Alamos evolved once more into a multidisciplinary institution. And that's what the lab is today. And so although today you will see most of what we do is, you know, kind of nuclear weapons mission, national security mission, uh, there's science done in just about every major area that you can think of. Now, the laboratories, plural, you know, whether it's Livermore, Sandia, Los Alamos, or the other many wonderful national laboratories that are not weapons design laboratories, what we do, our, our research portfolio is very much a reflection of what the nation needs technologically as mandated to us by Congress. And so, you know, times change, the laboratories change. And just to give you, before we jump into the end of the Cold War, you know, you get to the end of the 1950s, Rocky Flats produced 7,000 nuclear pits in 1959 alone, and then produced another 7,000 the next year. I think that in 1959, 1960, to put this in perspective, today there are seven weapons types in stockpile. Los Alamos is responsible for four of them, Livermore is responsible for three. I think in 1959, 1960 alone, 10, 11 new weapons types were introduced to the stockpile. And Rocky Flats is cranking these things out by the thousands. It's just completely unbelievable by today's standards. Now, as we get to the end of the Cold War, things had changed. We weren't, there were no more breakthroughs. What there were, were remarkable refinements. And so the weapons that were entering the stockpile late in the year, the basic idea was that these were highly optimized, very reliable, but highly optimized. And the intent was that, you know, in 10 years, they'll all be gone. They'll be replaced with something else. The stockpile was much, much smaller by the end of the Cold War. I believe that the numerical peak was in 1967, 31,255 weapons in stockpile officially uh, during that year. End of the Cold War, the stockpile was a lot smaller than that. And of course it got smaller after the Cold War as well. You didn't have 10 new designs a year. You, you didn't see those. You didn't need to do as many tests. But these, you know, although the numbers were smaller, these were very, very important. Each test was extremely important and extremely useful. Each weapon type that introduced was introduced in the stockpile, very important, very important mission for the military and for policymakers. Now, when the Cold War came to an end, I think December 26, 1991, the Soviet Union is formally dissolved. There were more weapon systems in the hopper ready to come out. The military's the, the customer. Military shows up, well, the Cold War is over, canceled. They, they went away and it was extremely abrupt at that point in time. Um, so, so if you're at Los Alamos, for instance, and I think that our colleagues across the weapons complex would concur, even though Los Alamos had evolved into a multidisciplinary institution, most of the work was weapons design and testing. Well, in the fall of 1992, 
uh, Los Alamos performed its, uh, its, its final full-scale nuclear test uh, to date and, and, and hopefully forever. Well, hopefully we'll never need to do a full-scale nuclear test again. But uh, September 23rd, 1992, some of the scientists thought that, you know, they might get a few more tests, 15 tests, then 10 tests, then no tests. That was it. That was the end of the road. Um, what would you do if you're a scientist at Los Alamos? There are not going to be even 10 more nuclear tests. There's not going to be any. All of the designs have been canceled by the military. A lot of people left. As you can imagine, morale in the weapons program at the laboratory was very low at that point in time. Uncertainty was very high. Uh, nobody knew what was going to happen next. But if you're a scientist with, uh, you know, with, with, with a lot of experience and knowledge in physics, chemistry, metallurgy, whatever it may be, a lot of people very understandably left and went somewhere else. And, you know, the years, I think 93 and 94 in particular, extremely difficult at the laboratory. No one knew exactly what was going to happen next. But what also happened during those years, getting into the mid 90s, was the nation realized, oh, wait, the Cold War is over, but it's still a dangerous world. And we may not be to the point where we want to let go of nuclear weapons quite yet. These may still play a very important role in current and, and maybe in future um, national policy. So you've got these weapons in stockpile that were designed to last, as we mentioned before, maybe 10 or 20 years, something like that, maybe a little bit longer. They were not designed to last indefinitely. So an entirely new program had to be invented to maintain those weapons. And that was dubbed the Stockpile Stewardship Program. And that's still what goes on throughout the complex. And, you know, I, I don't think it's an overstatement to make at least some comparisons between the Stockpile Stewardship Program and the Manhattan Project. Both were huge national efforts employing thousands of people at weapons laboratories. Uh, both involved, you know, innovating almost from scratch. I mean, when you look at the issues that you encounter with preserving something as complex as a nuclear weapon system indefinitely, that's extremely challenging. And so stockpile stewardship, I think, is a remarkable invention that continues on to this day. It, it has enabled the, uh, the United States to maintain a stockpile without doing full-scale nuclear tests, and it's worked so far. And I think that's a huge accomplishment to everybody throughout the, uh, throughout the complex. We don't know what tomorrow or certainly 10 years from now, how things are going to look different. But, you know, we went from that period of uncertainty in the early 90s to having, you know, a, a new and pretty exciting mission uh, in the mid-1990s with the Stockpile Stewardship Program. I, I still think that the laboratory went through several years after that trying to reestablish its identity in the post-Cold War world. Uh, having been at the laboratory since 2003, when I got there in 2003, I very much saw that. You know, I, I saw that it was still laboratory in transition. But you don't really see that. I think so many years have passed between the end of the Cold War and that with all the conflicts and potential conflicts that we see in the world, uh, the importance of the mission of the weapons program is probably become, is, is more in focus now and over the past few years than it had been since the end of the Cold War. And so it's, you know, the laboratory has changed once again. Do you think for many of the scientists, particularly the younger generation that's being recruiting, recruited in now, and, you know, we've talked to Tom Mason and we've talked to a lot of the senior staff across 
the you know the weapons labs that that you know it's sort of a transition period right now where you're seeing a you know an a you know a generation that's in their 50s and 60s starting to look at and then potentially retire and this newer generation that you know weren't even born when the cold war ended are taking over and we're now at a time where we're looking at you know the the russians have you know two some somewhere between 2 and 6000 tactical nuclear weapons in europe 12 delivery vehicles multiple warhead designs they've modernized their arsenal the chinese are building you know a very solid triad they're putting you know icbms in the the desert the North Koreans are building an arsenal, which they claim will be a peer to the United States. It's a, it's a dangerous time. And, you know, our, the closest we're really getting to designing a new weapon is the B-6113. We're, you know, we're making some changes to existing warheads. Uh, do you think that there is excitement, anticipation, uh, I'm not really sure what the perfect word is, but to describe the this younger generation of scientists who are looking at working at you know Los Alamos, then they're looking at what's going on in in Russia and Asia, and saying, "Hey, this is this is a great place to be at a great time in history. We can make a real contribution." Is that the sort of the internal dialogue or is there a different internal dialogue? You know, I, th- I think it's a little bit different for, for all of the students. I, I, or I say students. We do have about 2,000 students at the laboratory during the summers. And that's very much a pipeline for these young staff members that you were alluding to, Adam. You know, with, the, with a lot of these um, younger folks, if you will, um, you know, all of them have a little bit different story, how they ended up at Los Alamos. Uh, you know, curiosity about nuclear technology brings a lot. There's not as many nuclear engineering programs in the country as there used to be. Los Alamos, you know, if you get into that technology, Los Alamos is one of the, you know, places where you can end up and have a have a career. You know, I, I would say, you know, as as we consider that, because this is some this is a question that I've considered quite a bit. I work at the laboratory's National Security Research Center. So we're the NSRC. And I think that our shop, uh, and we have a staff of about 60 people uh, now, is kind of where the rubber hits the road on a couple of these different issues. One is the, well, how should we proceed? And so in the NSRC, we have millions and millions of records. Uh, documenting the history of design and testing, what worked, what didn't work, why it didn't, all these other things. And as you know, Adam, you know, history can't tell you what to do in the future. Maybe it's better at telling you what not to do sometimes, but but it can certainly inform uh, where we are and where you might want to consider moving forward, but it's no predictor of the future. We have so much data from the past that can help with that how question. You know, how did we do things in the past and how might we want to proceed in the future? The United States has a huge advantage because we have this vast testing history and we maintain a vast percentage of that 
in the National Security Research Center. So we can help those younger people who are getting into the business and uh, for whatever the reason may be. And again, I, I do think that all of these extremely dangerous and right now limited conflicts, who knows again what tomorrow might bring, I think that's part of it. But the other thing, and I think this pertains to me, Nick Lewis, who's the other full-time historian and those who are staff who are interested in history, there's also the question of, well, why? Why do we do what we do today? And it's not justifying anything. It's just like, well, how did we get here? Why is it important, at least to some? Why should it maybe be important to you as a laboratory employee? We interpret a lot of the history from the past. We, we try to remember, you know, we talked about in our first, uh, in the first episode of our podcast, Adam, you know, the, uh, the threat that was posed by the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. You went through, now we've got this long laundry list of, of very dangerous uh, actors out there to one degree or another. Uh, the world has always been more dangerous, but I think it continues to grow in danger. And now it's growing in complexity. Uh, as well as we see all of these different entanglements. Los Alamos and Livermore and Sandia and the other laboratories can and very much should be part of bringing more sustainability to the world in many different ways, whether it's national security or, or whether it's looking at the future, what it looks like in terms of climate change, security, whatever the case may be. I'd like to think, and I think that it does for some, because I do get to interact with a lot of those younger people. I think that's an exciting thing to, to have a job that matters. And when I give talks about the past, I try to convey that to the people who are going to be making our future at the laboratory and throughout the complex. They have important jobs, whether they realize it or not. I want to help them to try and realize just how important their jobs can be. Uh, it is a scary world. And again, you know, when, when you think about the United States' involvement in World War I and in World War II, it didn't happen overnight. You know, in World War I, started in 1914, the United States shows up in 1917. World War II starts in Europe in 1939. The United States shows up at the tail end of 1941. As we look at these con uh, conflicts out there, again, these, you know, World War I and II, everything's changed since then. They're not necessarily indicators of what will happen. But sometimes huge conflicts can develop very slowly. And so as we look at Taiwan, what's happening in Gaza right now, uh, Ukraine, et cetera, nuclear weapons are in the world. It's a dangerous place. And again, I, I think that Los Alamos, Sandia, Livermore, the other laboratories of DOE, I think that they're part of the solution, but it is a hard problem to take on. Now, before we end the show, we always like to bring out Bob the genie. And as I rub my magic lamp, Bob, of course, grants all Nuclecast guests three wishes, but they have to be about the topics we've been discussing. So as you make your three wishes for Bob, you know, the future of the lab, uh, you know, the history of the lab, what would be your wish number one? Oh, man, I, I wish I had had time to think about this in advance. <laughs> I guess it's going to be just a stream of conscience uh, in, instead. Um, you know, I, I, I do wish that not only the people that are already in the complex, but those who might be a part of our complex someday 
will recognize just how important their job is. And I hope that they'll want to stay and make careers. Uh, you know, these days, it's so much easier for people to just pack up a 401k and go from place to place. Los Alamos really is one of those places where that does and has regularly over its 80 year history changed the world. And so I hope, I wish that, uh, that those who are at the lab now and those who will be coming in the future recognize how important they are and they can be to our mission. Okay. That's wish number one. Now wish, wish number two. <laughs> oh man. Uh, you know, for me, the, these are the good old days, you know, for a long time in our shop, we didn't have any funding or resources or priority and that's all changed. And so I'm very grateful for that. And uh, so, uh, um, you know, I, I wish that, you know, the type of, talented people that we have there right now. The, uh, I, I get to work with so many incredible, incredible people. I went from being the new guy. I was the new guy in my shop for about 16, 17 years. <laughs> and then in about a year, I went to being this, this antiquity myself. Uh, and so I wish that uh, just the path that we're, we're on right now of continuing to be able to hire these remarkable people, I hope that it will continue. Los Alamos is larger in terms of staff now than we ever have been before. There are about 16,000, 17,000 people that are affiliated with the laboratory right now. Uh, the staffing job, I think, uh, I can speak in particular to our shop, but I think others as well, has been great. We've been, uh, a lot of hard work has gone into that, maybe a little bit of luck, maybe some dangerous circumstances in the world as well. But I wish that we would continue to have the uh, same level of quality, curiosity, innovation, uh, you know, dedication to work on our staff that we have right now. Because these, as I mentioned, at least for our shop, they're the good old days and we're making a difference. And it's because of all these people that we have and that I hope that we will continue to have in the future. All right. Now, final wish, your third and final wish. I, I am very nervous about the trajectory of world events right now. Um, you know, we, we talked about there, there are multiple hotspots in the world that could lead to far wider conflicts. You know, we, people wish for world peace. A lot of times that's their first wish. And of course, maybe that's beyond scope of our, you know, we have to keep the wishes within the context of our discussion today. W world peace is not possible. It never will be. As long as there are two people with two different sets of values and different perspectives, there will also always be some conflict, whether it's a big dangerous one or if it's just a friendly debate. It's just not going to happen in a world with humans in it. My third wish is that I, you know, I don't care if it's Livermore or Sandia or Los Alamos, but, but I wish that one of our laboratories would develop technologies that would lead to a more peaceful world where it is uh, a little bit harder to stumble into a massive world conflict. I do think that nuclear weapons were the first invention along uh, that pathway. But again, as Norris Bradbury would say, this may not be the most eloquent, uh, eloquent or safe way to, to keep the peace. Maybe it's time to think even bigger about how our laboratories can contribute to a safer and more sustainable world. So I wish that one of the weapons laboratories would develop technology. And I know this is nebulous and it's out there, but you know we're talking about Bob the genie, so why not? 
I wish that one of the laboratories would develop something that would revolutionize the world in a very positive way. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Bob, Bob the genie has granted your three wishes. So uh, <laughs> thanks to you, Alan Carr, the senior historian at Los Alamos National Lab for joining us on both the first and second episode to discuss the history of the lab sort of in that post uh, Manhattan project period. So it's, it's an important time and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy, you know, hearing sort of that evolution of the lab. So thanks for sharing that with us. My pleasure, Adam. Great to be here. I hope we can do an episode. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thanks to you, the listeners for joining us. And we'll see you on the next episode of Nuclecast. Well, great two-part episode talking to Alan Carr. We we covered, you know, from essentially 1945 up to the present in the history of Los Alamos, and you know, talked about some of the the big issues and how the lab dealt with, you know, the the rise of the Cold War and then the decline of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. And part, you know, part of the reason we do this is because we want the, you know, our history to be remembered and it's, it's, you know, it's important, you know, that we don't forget where we've been and, you know, the considerations we made and what led us to make decisions so that as we now enter a new period in which we're facing, you know, three nuclear adversaries we can make the wisest decisions and, you know, hopefully ensure that deterrence holds and that we do not, in fact, see uh, nuclear weapons used in anger. So it's, uh, you know, it's an important thing to talk about. Hopefully you enjoyed it. I did. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Jennington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Frunthal. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast.